Today's message comes from Revelation 7. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Several months ago, I was on the back deck here at the place where we worship, working on my sermon. And a man walked by me, and he kind of, I could see him looking down. And of course, I had my Bible open. I had a few books, commentaries open. And he stopped, and he pointed, and he said, what are, you, what are you reading? I said, well, I'm reading the Bible. And he said, well, what are those books next to your Bible? I said, those are, they're called commentaries. They help explain the scripture. He went, oh, how, do you, you know, how do you get hold of one of those? And it turned into a really good conversation about a man who he, he reads his Bible. And as he talked more, he, he reads his Bible. He talked as, as though he, he believed in Jesus and great conversation. And so we got along in it. And I said, so you know, do you worship here at a local church? And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, I, I believe Jesus. I'm, I'm good with Jesus, but the church is corrupt. It's an institution I will never be a part of. We talked a little bit longer, and I tried to help him think through that a little bit more. But it's, it's not at all an uncommon view. The view that I'm good with Jesus, or I believe Jesus, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. 
actually is, is quite common. It's, that's one of many conversations I've had about that. Here's, the, here's the, the challenge or the problem with that view. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus loves the church and he's building his church even though it is absolutely imperfect. And even though there are things that have happened over history and even in people's personal lives that would make them say, I'm never stepping foot in the church again. All that is true in a reality but the church is, 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 a, is an organization, it's a people that Jesus loves and he's building. And over 2,000 years, it has survived. It's been attacked, it's been mocked, it's been criticized, it's been undermined, and it continues uh, to flourish. And, and over the, the history, you see it operate with, in certain times, uh, visible prominence and influence, and at other times, it's, it's marginalized and it's pushed to the back seat and yet has continued to thrive and to flourish. In fact, it has over 2,000 years, nations have risen and fallen in that time. Governments and rulers have come and gone. Businesses have succeeded and failed and yet the church continues. I would say in, in our day today, we are much more in the area of the first century or the, much more like the first century church and surroundings and that it has really a reputation of being irrelevant, out of touch with the world, and yet it continues to thrive. And, and here's the question you have to ask is why? Why for over 2,000 years and continuing does the church continue to thrive? Well, it's because Jesus is building it, but, but particularly as we see in this passage it's a protected church, it's a persevering church, and it's a triumphant church. So let's start with the protected church. And I would just say before I start, let me just make an honest comment here. That some of you have been a part of the church for decades. Some of you may be here this morning, and this may be one of your first times stepping into church. Maybe you've been gone for a while. Maybe you have the type of feelings that that man who stopped by my table on the deck out there have, that you really have some skepticism. My hope is that as we read this chapter this morning, that, that this would encourage you, wherever you're at in your view of maybe Christianity, the church of Jesus, because it's a beautiful chapter about what the church really is. And maybe it'll break down some of the stereotypes that you've had towards the church. So first, the protected church, verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Now, what are these four winds of the earth? Well, they are, they are God's agents to execute judgment. And we see that in, in verse two. Look at the end of verse two. It describes these four winds even further. The four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. So at the beginning of chapter seven, it comes out of the gates with judgment, but it's really just picking off where chapter six ended because right at the end of chapter six, it describes people going to hide into caves and hiding under the rocks of the mountains, right? Because of the judgment of God calling out, in fact, verses 16 and 17, the last two verses of chapter six, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
Now, God's wrath, not a popular topic at all in our day. God's judgment. You know, many would say God's wrath and God's judgment is the very reason why I'm skeptical or I fail to embrace Christianity. Maybe that's where you're at. And and usually the argument or the conversation goes, why would I follow a God of anger and a God of wrath? I mean, a God of love? Yes. But a God of wrath? No. But here's the reality. Love and wrath are not incompatible. Love and wrath are not enemies. Let me try to help you see this. If your child, who you love deeply, was assaulted by someone, or your friend or a family member whom you love deeply was horribly taken advantage of, how would you respond to that? You'd get angry, right? The wrath would bubble up inside of you. Why? Because you love that person. Your your anger would flow out of your love for that person. And it's the same way with God. God's wrath is an expression of his love. God's wrath is his commitment to get rid of the cancer that is eating away at his beautiful world and his beautiful creation. It's his commitment to purge evil, to purge sin, what doesn't belong, because he loves his creation, he loves his people. Now, typically, when we talk about that, when we talk about wrath or judgment being God purging evil, we're okay with judgment out there. We're not okay with judgment in here, in our hearts. But the reality is there's evil out there because there's evil in the heart of man, and that's where it comes from. And so God has to purge it. And that's why you see at the end of chapter six in Revelation, you see them hiding in the caves and hiding in the, in the, in the rocks of the mountains. Why? Because there's a fear of judgment. There's a fear of, of death, not just physical, but spiritual. In Romans 3.23, for the way or all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everyone. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, eternal separation from God. There's a great fear. We see in the end of Revelation 6 of God's judgment because he's he's committed to purging what doesn't belong. He loves his world that much. He loves his people that much. Now, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. But what we see at the beginning of chapter 7, we see that God is holding back his judgment. Right? He's holding back the winds, which are executing his judgment. He's holding back those angels that are bringing harm. He's holding back his judgment. Why? Look at verse two. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice. Verse three, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So God is withholding judgment till his people are sealed. Now, what is the seal? And what is the seal on the forehead? Well, it comes from Ezekiel chapter nine. As I've said, all the imagery in Revelation, you don't have to try to figure out what it means. It all comes from the Old Testament. 
And in Ezekiel 9, you've got God's people who are in absolute rebellion, sin, idolatry. They're running away from God. And so we read about a man clothed in linen is how it is described in Ezekiel 9. It's a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ coming to execute judgment. And listen to what the the directions or the instructions from the Lord are are in verses 4 to 5 of Ezekiel 9. Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said, pass through the city after him and strike. So those who were sorrowful over their sin and idolatry and repented, received a seal on the forehead and were spared the judgment that everyone else received. Now, this seal on the forehead is, it's not literal. It's figurative. If you pass up through the New Testament, it's Ephesians 1, that when we, when we respond to Jesus Christ, when we turn to him in faith and repentance, it says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit comes in, seals us, signifying we're a member of God's family. We've been purchased by Jesus. Our sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed, which means we're protected from judgment. So God's delaying judgment until his people are sealed and protected from judgment. Let let me illustrate this with with a very sophisticated, extremely sophisticated picture of Chuck E. Cheese. When you go into Chuck E. Cheese, they put a stamp on your hand. Your hand, your children's hands. And it's a stamp that's invisible. So you go do your thing, you play, you have fun. When you leave, they take a little pin light and they shine it on the top of your hand. And it makes this stamp visible and it's a number. And the only way that you get out of Chuck E. Cheese with your children is if your numbers match your children's number. They all match. Why? It's to protect your children. So if you're in there running around, your kids are running around, and an adult tries to snatch your kid and take them out, they come to the door, they shine the pin light, numbers don't match, your child's not going out the door. Right? You receive that invisible stamp as protection. The invisible seal of God, the invisible seal of the Holy Spirit keeps anyone or anything from snatching you out of the hands of Jesus Christ. In fact, John chapter 10 says it this way. Those the Father has given me, I give eternal life, and they will never perish. You know what that means? They will never experience judgment that casts them out of my presence. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's what the seal means. And that's what it means to be sealed by the Spirit, is that you are protected from the judgment of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ has taken judgment in your place. Now, God withholds his final judgment, which is the return of Christ, until all his children. That's what he says, until all are sealed. That's until all his children who have been purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross, turn to him in faith and repentance. And it says 144,000. That's not a literal number, okay? It's a figurative number, and here's what it means. What you see in verses five to eight are listed the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? Old Testament community of, of, of God, church. 
12 tribes of Israel, Israel times 12 apostles representing the New Testament church, times 1,000, which represents a multitude, that's where the 144,000 comes from. It means God's church throughout the ages, all of the people that he has chosen and then delivered to Jesus to, to accomplish salvation on the cross. And God says, until my people have repented, all of them, repented and turned to Jesus, I will withhold judgment until they all come in. And so we see that the, the church stands the test of time because it's a protected church, because Jesus Christ endured judgment for the church in the place of the church. It's a protected church. Second, though, the church stands the test of time because it is a persevering church. Look at verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So these are the ones clothed in white robes, are those who have died in Christ and who are now in the throne room. And it says they've come out of the great tribulation. What is the great tribulation? It is not a short, concentrated period of time of suffering before Christ returns. In fact, the great tribulation is picked up in Daniel 12. It, it describes all of the suffering, all of the trouble, all of the persecution, all of the pressure that God's people, the ones who are sealed and have yet to be sealed, face in this world through the entire history of the world. Old Testament new. That's what the great tribulation is. The word actually means um, the squeeze or the pressure of life. Think about a vice grip and two plates of a vice grip just squeezing down. That's what, that's what the great tribulation means. It's the pressure that, that believers in Jesus face to compromise their faith or to deny Christ. I think more often it's not to deny Christ, but it's to compromise faith. That when, when, the, when the heat of life picks up and you're squeezed and you're pressed, it's not I'm gonna deny Christ, but I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna put Christ on the shelf and find something else to comfort me. That's what it means to compromise faith. And that's, that's the great tribulation. In fact, it's described in Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter about all the Old Testament believers. All they went through, all the persecution, all the suffering. In fact, towards the end of Hebrews 11, it describes it this way. In verses 36 to 39, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. It's this tremendous pressure that we face in a broken world. And it's the same squeeze, listen, in Hebrews 11, that description of the pressure and what they faced is the same squeeze that you and I face. It's the same pressure that you and I face in a broken world. It's the pressure, it's when you can't get a diagnosis for the pain you're experiencing in your body. It's the pressure you face when you watch your child suffer and you can do nothing about it. And the doctors can't do anything about it. It's the pressure you face when your marriage is stressed and on the rocks and you see no hope. There seems to be no light on the horizon. 
It's the pressure you face when you lose your job and you're years into trying to find another one. It's the pressure you face, and this is certainly acute here in this season. It's the pressure you face when the brokenness of your family and your extended family continues to disrupt your life and give you, give you bitter thoughts and bitter memories of your childhood. It's the pressure you face when you lose multiple loved ones over a short period of time. It's the pressure you face when you feel like you, you come to the end of your rope. When you feel like you're at the end of your rope, you feel like God is distant. You feel like God is vacant. That's the pressure. That's the squeeze. Verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. But, last half of verse 14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, what's that mean? Because it can be confusing. If you go up to verse nine, it talks about those that are clothed in white robes. And that's referring to all those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ, there's a great exchange that happens. He takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness. You're clothed in garments of righteousness. And that's something God does. You don't wash yourself. You don't clothe yourself. So what does verse 14 mean then when it says they have washed their robes and made them white? It means that they continue in the face of all the pressure of a broken world, the squeeze. In the, in the midst of that, they continue believing and testifying to the death of the lamb of Jesus Christ on their behalf. They persevere. They continue to believe. And we see that not only that, in verses nine to 12, it's not just doing it alone. They don't just do this alone. Verses nine to 12 describe this multitude of people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every people gathered around the throne room. And you get this picture that they're standing there with all of their scars, all of their wounds from the great tribulation of life in a broken world. And they're standing around the throne collectively together, having their scar, everything healed by the presence of Christ. That when you get to the end of your rope, and you feel like you're alone, and you feel like you're isolated, what we learn here is you don't get to the end of your rope and stay there alone. That together, collectively, we stand around the throne of Jesus Christ. And we see that when they're doing it here, they wave palm branches, which you remember, you, they wave palm branches when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. Uh, moving towards his throne. Now they're waving them with him on his throne as king. And they cry out in verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. They're worshiping together, not alone. Do you realize in this picture who is standing around the throne? It's Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, who refused to deny God and because of that got thrown in a den of lions. He's standing probably close to or next to the apostle Paul who was flogged many times because he wouldn't deny Christ, beaten over and over, who's, who's probably standing in and near Stephen, the first deacon of the early church, who was stoned to death for preaching Christ, standing next to Jim Elliott, who in 1956 was killed by the very people, the Aka people he was trying to bring the gospel to, standing next to everyone, not just the martyrs, but everyone who, has fa who faced tribulation 
in this world now standing before Christ collectively being healed. And I say that because you, and we've talked about this in recent weeks, that when we worship here on earth, that the veil is opened and we worship with that multitude of people that is described here in Revelation 7. In fact, Hebrews 11 that talks about the, the faith of the Old Testament believers After Hebrews 11, the first verse of Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and then it goes on to talk about earthly worship being in the heavenlies, that we're standing here worshiping, but we're standing with all these people that died in Christ that are standing around the throne as well, collectively worshiping. And that means that today, you may be worshiping next to someone who just lost a loved one. You may, be, you may be worshiping next to someone who just lost their job and is wondering how they're gonna pay the bills. You may be worshiping next to someone whose marriage is on the rocks. You may be standing next to someone and worshiping with someone who just is in the midst of a deep depression who could barely get out of bed this morning and make their, make their way to church. We stand together collectively, persevering together. Uh, recently, I was watching a nature show of some sort And it was describing and showing how dolphins um, attack their prey. And it showed a video of these dolphins moving into very shallow water where the bait fish were. And they started swimming in a circle really fast and they were popping their tail on the ground to stir up the mud and the sand. And they would do this in a circle over and over until they literally had created uh, this wall of mud and sand with the bait fish in the middle. And then they would just sit outside of this mud circle. And the bait fish on the inside, it would be so chaotic. They could no longer see. They start panicking and, you know, bait fish stay together, right? But in the midst of the panic and the chaos, and they couldn't see, they started scattering and they would jump over this mud wall right into the mouth of the dolphins that were just waiting there. They just jumped right into death, right? Because they started to scatter and panic. There is such a temptation that when life gets hard, when the squeeze presses in, when the pressures mount, and you feel the absolute unease of life in a broken world, it is so easy to isolate yourself. And it's so easy in isolation then to just panic and run to something and to jump and to run and and, and you realize I just ran into death. The call for the persevering church is to lock arm in arm together and to persevere together. And that when you feel that isolation kicking in, when you feel the pressure mounting, instead of running, it's to run to someone else the church would stand together and persevere. Don't remain at the end of your rope alone. That's the message. So why does the church of Jesus Christ stand the test of time? It's a protected church. It's a persevering church. And finally, it's a triumphant church. Verses 15 to 17 give us this beautiful picture of the end of the story. Gorgeous picture of what we're headed towards. And we see it describes the reward. It's the reward for those that persevere. 
protected from God's judgment by Jesus, persevering, hanging on, believing. And then it's the reward. It's a reward of service. It's a reward of comfort. First, the reward of service. Look at verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That word temple there in verse 15, it's speaking of the holy of holies in the temple in the Old Testament. That was the very dwelling place of God. And that was where the high priest only once a year could enter and he couldn't enter without blood. And now this is describing the entire church in the holy of holies, in the presence of God, not having to bring blood because blood was shed once and all, once and for all by Jesus. Serving God continually. Now you say, wait a minute, why is this a reward? Why is this a reward? We'll serve God continually because you and I know very well in a broken world full of pressure how easy it is to serve self. We battle that all the time, our selfishness, serving self. And what we see here in the new heavens and the new earth, the story of the end is that we will be in the presence of God, serving him continually, unable to serve ourselves, nor wanting to serve ourselves. There will be no selfishness. It'll be gone. I was a, a couple weeks ago, before I took my kids to school, uh, my son went under the Christmas tree and he pulled out this gift and he said, he said, Daddy, look what I got for you. It was wrapped. I said, buddy, that's awesome. Thank you. He said, let me tell you what it is. And I said, I said, Isaac, no, 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 no. Just wait till Christmas morning. No, daddy, I want to tell you right now. Let me tell you what it is. I said, no, Isaac, please, no. So I finally convinced him not to tell me. So he sticks it under the tree and he pulls out two other presents wrapped. And he says, well, let me tell you what I got mommy and my sister. And so he tells me what he got mommy and what he got his sister. And I, and I looked at him. I said, Isaac, do you know why you are so excited to tell daddy what you got him. He said, why? I said, because you are created to give. You are created to serve. You're created to be generous. Now I have no idea if a five-year-old brain got that, but it's true. We are created to give, to serve to be other-centered, and we struggle with that in our sin here. But this picture is beautiful. That in the new heavens and new earth, we will serve God and serve others and not be able to serve ourselves. That's the first reward. The second is a reward of comfort. Look at verses 16 to 17. No hunger, no thirst. Jesus the Lamb, our shepherd, will guide us to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. You know, we oftentimes talk about comfort as an idol, and it is. But, but here's the truth, and don't miss this. Your desire for comfort is not wrong. Your desire for comfort is God-given. What's wrong or what turns bad is when you try to secure that comfort through this material world. And so what we learn between Jesus' first and second coming, God promises comfort spiritually in Christ, but not physically. 
After Jesus returns in the new heavens and the new earth, we are promised certainly spiritual comfort in Christ and physical comfort. Now, why is this important? Why is this important to see? Because it means that our reward is not here. That our reward is in the new heavens and the new earth. And yes, we have comfort today in Christ, but there's all kinds of physical discomfort. That's the norm here. Our reward is not here, so we don't try to procure or build our reward here. We look to what's coming when Jesus returns. That's where our reward is. And I could broaden it out to say, why is this vision of the protected, persevering, and triumphant church so important? Because when we grab hold of it, right, we gladly give away our comfort now. We gladly give away our lives now. We lay it all on the line for our worthy Savior because we're promised he's coming back and he's going to set everything right. But until then, we pour ourselves out. Yeah, we just finished in community Bible reading the book of Numbers. And I was especially struck by Numbers 13 and 14, those two chapters in my read through it, because it describes uh, what God told Moses when they were getting close to the promised land. This land God had promised to give him in Canaan. And so God says to Moses, send out spies to go look at the land and come back with a report. The, the spies go out, they come back, and all but two of the spies, all but Joshua and Caleb come back and say, no way. They're too strong. They're too numerous. We're going to get crushed. And what's really heart-wrenching is to see the response of God's people in the midst of that kind of fear. They all crumple and they start weeping. And Joshua and Caleb stand up and say, no, we need to go because God's given us the land. Yes, it'll be hard. Yes, there'll be resistance. It won't be easy. It'll be uncomfortable, but God has given us the land, so we go. It's this picture. It's the difference between selfish or self-preserving fear and gospel courage. Selfish fear and gospel courage. You know, in the same way that God said to them, I'm giving you the land, do you know God has said to us, I'm giving you people? And I've given you people? How do we know that? Well, Jesus hasn't returned yet, which means judgment is being delayed. Why? Because there are people whom Jesus has purchased on the cross who have not turned to him in faith and repentance yet. And so God says, go. Will it be hard? Yes. Will there be resistance? Yes. Will it be uncomfortable? Yes. Will it require sacrifice? Yes. But gospel courage. And when you have this promise of Revelation 7 and what we have in store, then gladly let us give our lives away. So we go plant a church at the beach in the next eight months. We are sending out an absolutely wonderful launch team. Who are they? We don't know yet, but we will because God has raised people up on the island. We have a lot of people worshiping there. A launch team's gonna get together and we're gonna launch public worship. Is it gonna cost? Yes. Time? Yes. Energy? Yes. People? Yes. Will there be some empty chairs here next September? Yes. But gospel courage. God says, Go. Go. It's the same reason why he says, go to your neighborhood. Go to your coworkers. Why? Because I've given you people. You don't know who they are. Go share the gospel. Watch people respond. Is it costly? Yes. Does it require sacrifice? Yes. But gospel courage says go. 
Gospel courage produced by a vision of the protected church, the persevering church, and the triumphant church. Let's pray. Father, we read the story of the Bible, and from start to finish, we find a people that you have called who stumble and sin and rebel. And so we see these two storylines of a people that stumble and rebel, people that face resistance, hardship, and yet a storyline of you from start to finish working out the redemption of your people, culminating in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on the cross and his impending return that we celebrate in this Advent season. Father, as you give us a picture in Revelation 7 of the church, protected from judgment by Jesus, persevering, hanging on, even when we're at the end of our rope, and triumphant in the end with no more death, sin, pain. Oh, Father, would that vision of the church so capture our attention that we would gladly say, Lord, here's my life. Lord, here's my time. Lord, here are my gifts. Lord, here are my finances. Take them and use them. Father, would you fill us as a church? Would you fill us with gospel courage that doesn't come from us, that comes from you and your spirit, but that flows out of this vision, that we as a people would understand that our reward is not here. Our reward is locked up in the new heavens and the new earth, and yet, Father, you give us the Holy Spirit now, the presence of your son Jesus dwelling in us to give us gospel comfort and gospel courage. Father, as we close in worship, would you fill our hearts and minds with what you have already done in Christ and what you will do in Christ? And we pray this all in his name. Amen.